Good morning, church. Good to see you here this morning as we gather as a body to fellowship with one another and also with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to have our pastor back and, um, and just anticipation of what the Lord has laid on his heart this morning. We thank him for that. Um, if you have a bulletin this morning, there's a special insert there in your bulletin regarding uh, Ms. Wendy Quiner. She was the wife of Dave Quiner that, you, that served our body for over 21 years here at El Paso Bible Church. And a very special lady. And uh, there's uh, information there about her and also about the services that are going to be going on on the 24th here. Um, Listed here are the information for the services for Winnie Quiner. So if you'd like to attend, uh, there's the information. Also in your bulletin, like always, there are the, the printing of the ministries that are going on here at Pastor Bible Church. Uh, Bible Church, excuse me. Uh, uh, the youth ministries, the ladies, the, all the other things that are going here at Pastor Bible Church. So they're here for your, for your reading. And... Uh, as we begin our service, I would like for you to open your Bibles to Romans 8. And I'll just be reading one passage out of Romans 8 this morning in preparation for our pastor's message. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What a wonderful promise that is for, for us believers. Let's pray. Our Father God, this morning, we're most grateful for the fact that your spirit is present among us, Father. That we join together, not only here together, but also, Father, that we're joined together in our hearts. Because we serve the same God, the same Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, for the life of Christ. And also, Father, for the work on the cross on our behalf. We rely so much on that and it gives us hope during these days that we live and we thank you so much for that. Father, there are some here in our, in our midst in our church that are not with us uh, for various reasons and some that are ailing. We think of uh, the Myers, Father. We just continue to lift them up to you, Father, that you make them strong and uh, we ask for their full recovery, Father, from the cancers that they're fighting and also, Father, one person that we haven't prayed for is Mr. Eddie, Al Eddie. He is also himself going through some procedures, Father, that need our prayer and we just lift them up to you this morning, Father, especially those and many, many others, Lord, that might be needing prayer, Father. You know who they are. We've been praying for them, Father. We just lift them up to you this morning. We thank you so much, Father, that we can do that and we can uh, just join together. So, Father, this morning, we pray this special blessing on this service as we continue to, to adore you and also to lift up the name of Jesus. Thank you. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. Please stand as we worship our good Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's honey in the rock, water in the stone, men on the ground, no matter where I go. I don't need to worry now that I know everything I need, you've got. There's honey in the rock, praying for a miracle. 
God who was. We worship the God who is. We worship the God who evermore will be. He opened the prison doors. He parted the raging sea. My God, He holds a victory. Come on, sing it out, church. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise.
Well, good morning. morning. Y'all doing well, I hope. And uh, thanks. Matilda, that was wonderful. I haven't heard that song before. Have y'all heard that song before? Enjoyed it. I like that. Uh, Children, you guys can go to Children's Church if that's what you're doing today. Parents, I want to remind you that we, that's not mandatory. You can keep your kids uh, here at any age and up to any age. And uh, that's not a problem for us, but we do have that ministry available. Uh, but that's always up to you. That is supposed to be a ministry to you. And so we want to make sure that you understand that. Uh, it's not supposed to be shackles, right? Uh, so uh, thank you for praying for my family and I. Uh, well, as Priscilla and I traveled uh, to San Antonio area uh, for a, a hearing that we need to be present for. Um, keep praying for that uh, because the resolution was not reached. Can I say that? Um, so... Uh, that's an important thing that we will have to be brought to completion at some other time. Let's say that. So please keep praying for us uh, in that regard, in that matter. Um, but we do need to pray before we begin, I think, this morning. We have a lot going on in our community, in our world, uh, but certainly just within our body. And so we'll do that this morning. Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you so much for your grace to us. Um, we often mistakenly refer to things that are mercy as your grace. But Father, we, this morning, we want to recognize your favor and thank you for it, that you have given us so abundantly of your goodness in this life. And sometimes we, we do lose focus of that. Uh, Father, we thank you for your grace in the lives of those who are a testimony to it today, uh, those who are suffering uh, from physical ailments today, Father, that I have been ministered to nearly daily. Uh, by the encouragement and the comfort of their accurate discernment of your goodness, even in the midst of their suffering. And Father, we we thank you that you have not left us without that kind of witness at El Paso Bible Church. Uh, We thank you this morning for our time in your word. Uh, We thank you for the truth that it holds, and we ask that you would give us wisdom to apply it in a way that is glorifying to you this morning. In your son's name we pray, amen. All right, so we're in 1 John 5 this morning, and I, depending on your level of awareness, you may realize that 1 John is a difficult book for a lot of people. Uh, it's one of the few books in the New Testament that you can legitimately say a lot of those misunderstandings, a lot of those problems are actually caused by the translation. Um, and so there are some translations that are mm, fuzzy. We say that a lot of the a lot of the, what we would call a habitual present is misinterpreted, I think. But we have tried to avoid those things. Um, I have not gone through and translated the whole book myself um, in this case, but we have tried to make understanding key here from the very beginning, and that is that First John has to do with something known as fellowship, right? And it's something that is inclusive of people who are believers in Jesus Christ, right? And he makes that very clear, John does, from the very beginning. He says that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with God the Father and with Jesus Christ. 
so that our joy may be made complete, that we may have a fullness of joy in our lives. In other words, the goal of 1 John is not to get people to go to heaven when they die. The goal of 1 John is to make church a joyful place to be, to exist, to live. That's an important distinction, right? Uh, Because many people end up abandoning the fellowship of a local body. Because not only is it joyless, but they would say that it is in fact hateful. Um, Certainly we would not say that uh, about El Paso Bible Church, but the fact that it exists as a potential is something that we ought to take seriously. Um, But fellowship is designed to bring us a fullness of joy. It is something that is not static. It is not something that is a declaration, right? It's not justification. That's our declaration that we are righteous, that we have life, that we're in Christ, that happens at a moment in time, and it doesn't vacillate, it doesn't change, it doesn't alter. It is our entire possession from the moment we trust in Christ in its fullness, and it cannot be taken away. Praise Jesus. Yes? Fellowship in this book is something that can be obstructed. (laughs) It can be alienated. You can, in fact, hate your brother. That's kind of the dividing line, the very basic thing, right? If you say that you love God but you hate your brother, then you're a liar and you make God out to be a liar. But as we've said over and over through 1 John, that it may be possible for an unbeliever to hate a believer. It is not possible, not possible in New Testament terms, for an unbeliever to hate his brother. Yes? Right? We know how John uses the word brother. I have three brothers. They also happen to be brothers the way John uses it, that they are believers in Jesus Christ as they are children of God. We are brothers together in the Lord. Right? And that's the primary reference there. So an unbeliever can hate a believer, but an unbeliever cannot hate his brother, which is the sole focus of 1 John, how we behave towards our brothers in Christ. And so when we sin against them, he says that you're supposed to confess that. Because you're going to be disciplined for that. And confession removes that discipline from our lives. Brings us to restoration, and we are put in the position where we can pursue fellowship once again by loving each other, which is just an emulation, essentially, of the love that we have been shown. Thankfully, we are not obligated to create love out of thin air. Wouldn't that be a trick? You're not, you're not given no example. You're, you're, you're not left powerless. You are not supposed to be, uh, see, I'm not very artistic. People are like, how can you be not artistic? You make all this stuff out of wood. Well, my primary focus in my woodworking is to make something that works. And then people look at it and go, oh, that's beautiful. I agree. But my standard for beautiful is it works. If you asked me to draw a human being, you'd be better off just asking an AI bot to do it. Because even though my my sons tell me that they make hands with six fingers as a regular thing, that's way better than me, though. I can't draw a human hand to save my life. God didn't leave us without a pattern. Jesus did not leave us without a pattern. You do not have to create something out of thin air. You are not responsible for doing that. You are simply obligated to emulate the love that the Father has demonstrated to us in the Son and has caused to indwell us by the Spirit. 
He has not left you powerless. He has not left you without a pattern. So this great love that the Father has lavished upon us is simply given to us so that we can emulate it to other people. And it is an obligation. Love is an obligation. Now I'm going to say that as many times as it takes for you all to stop wrinkling up your noses every time I say it, ladies. It's mostly the women that do that. Not very woke of me to say, but it is mostly the women who do that. The men are mostly asleep, so I'm I'm just kidding. It's the only option. I'm just playing. Men, I know you're not asleep, but, you know, we had had this issue, right? But I'm going to say that over and over and over again. Children of God, you are obligated. You You owe it to one another to love each other. Now, understand, we've always made the distinction, right? And this is something that I will bank on all the time. I will... Uh, die on this hill, that your perception of love is likely corrupt. It is corrupted because you have mistaken it with being nice. And being nice doesn't have any place in your relationships, to be quite frank. Because being nice may have meant something at one time, but now it means being inoffensive. Whether you're offended or not has no business in, in the determination of whether you're being loving or whether you're being loved. People are offended by Jesus' love for them all the time. I don't care. Somebody may disagree. And they're in charge of the light switches. Don't turn them all off back there now. I can do this blindfolded if I have to, but I'd prefer not to. We are obligated to love the children of God. And when we we don't fulfill that obligation, John tells us what the problem is, right? (laughs) See, a lot of people, this is a common problem. And I get told this several times a week, sometimes more than that, that that when a believer fails to love another believer, the one who is now experiencing that lack of love levels an accusation and says, I don't think that person is even a believer. I don't think that person is even saved. I think, ultimately, that they're going to hell at this point in their life. That's what I think. Because they didn't love me. Don't do that. Don't do that. One of the most God-awful things you can do to another believer is to accuse them that way. Because John tells us what the, the lack is when a, one believer fails to love another. And that is that he does not know God. In other words, there's a knowledge problem, right? Now, that's not the same thing at all as being unsaved, isn't it? How do you go to heaven when you die, folks? People who've been at El Paso Bible Church for a while, I know we have some, some new folks here. How do you go to heaven when you die, folks? You believe. You could say you have faith in Christ. You trust in Christ. What is the nature of trust? A lack of knowledge. You don't have to trust if you have a fullness of knowledge. But if you are lacking in knowledge as a believer in Jesus Christ, you may fail to love another child of God. 
That does not determine your identity or your destiny. But it is a problem, significant problem, and one that needs to be remediated in order that we would fulfill our obligations, right? So you need to, to learn, right? Engage the instructions and the admonitions in Scripture. To abide is a term that John has used here. We said that abiding has two parts. To rest in who I am. If you're not resting in who you are in Christ, there is no activity that is going to satisfy that particular problem in your spiritual life. You must be able to understand the fullness and the simplicity of Christ's promise that the one who believes in me has eternal life today. But that's the first part of abiding. One who is now resting can now obey and fulfill his obligation to love. You do need to understand who you are in Christ and how permanent and absolute that gift is in order for your obedience to have any significance or any meaning at all. And that's the entire book, roughly, of 1 John. I mean, the, the, how we are to relate to one another and fellowship with one another as children of God within the family. But we would be foolish not to reiterate that one principle so that we know that that is true, that an unbeliever can hate a believer, but an unbeliever cannot hate his brother. This is all about inter, inner family dynamics of fellowship. And I will say, again, that is not up for negotiation. When I talk to people about First John, and I will tell you that I have talked to people at far too long of a length about their disagreements with me on First John, that this is regulating inner family relationships between the children of God and has nothing to do with how an unbeliever relates to the children of God, that is not negotiable for me. If somebody says, I disagree, I think this, my answer to this is, you're wrong. Next. Because that is explicit in the text. I will not argue that point with anybody. I won't. Uh, the nature of brotherhood, the nature of being a child of God does not permit me to do that. Um, you do this all the time, right? I don't debate with people on a lot of things. Um, and this is just one of many. It doesn't make it easier to understand, and it doesn't help, and it's just wrong. Love is an obligation, right? Lack of love has a resolution. So if you are lacking in love or you have failed to love, it's not popular to say from pulpits, right, that we can fail to do something. Um, I, will admit, I, have, I have failed to love people the way that I should have. But John gives a remediation to that in his, in his letter. He says that if you do that, you need to come to know God better. You need to obey his commands you need to value the priority of his wisdom, his discernment, his omnipotence, and his omniscience about what needs to be done. And I've told you that when I tell people that, and sometimes when I tell myself that, when I tell myself, and I do, Pastor Josh, I don't call myself Pastor Josh. I say Josh. Y'all call me Pastor Josh. I say Josh. You fell on your face on that one. 
I usually know what I should have done. And the reason that I don't do it is because it feels burdensome. It feels like God is asking me to do too much. Yeah? Mostly what we mean by that because we're prideful is that's too embarrassing. I'm related to a host of people for whom embarrassment is the ultimate thing to avoid. It's hard to do that when you have as many children as the people in my family have. Um, <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? You, if the one thing that you're trying to avoid in your life is embarrassment, you probably shouldn't have children. Uh, when they're young, anyway, right? They, can, they, they do provide opportunity, right? Oh, man. Oh, what are people going to think of me? Y'all are laughing like I'm the only one in the room that does that. It has happened. It has happened. But John tells us those commands are not burdensome. They're not crushing, right? They're not crushing. We talked about that at length. They're not crushing. In other words, what you, why you and I, we don't want to obey is not because the command is crushing. It's because we pre-feel the thing. It's because we have a perception that it will crush me, even when the Bible says it will not crush you. It will not destroy you to obey. You must rely on God to provide for you in keeping his commands and to love and fulfill your obligation, and it will not crush you. It will not crush me. It won't. even though it seems daunting, perhaps. Now, why should you accept that? Do you believe everything you hear? I don't either. Why should you believe that aspect? Why should you not trust your senses? Why should you not act on your pre-feeling, your pre-emotion that tells you that that's going to crush me. When God's Word says it is tolerable, you can do it. It will not crush you. Well, John says that that is the example of Christ's life. You expect, and I expect, implicitly or not, kind of, that the trajectory of obedience is one of positive progression of experience. That if you obey, things are going to get more pleasant. Roughly. And that's, what, that's the bill of goods you're sold in. I try to advise people, listen, on Christian radio, they don't care who they play for teaching. They don't care. They care who can make the time limit and who pays the money. That's how you get on the radio. It's gotten worse now that everybody is live streaming everything. But most of the time, even in churches that are not flaky flake flakes, you know, they basically imply that if you obey perfectly or even pretty goodly, right, that your basic trajectory is going to be an increase in pleasant experience. Well, John says you need to observe the time from Jesus' baptism 
to the time of Jesus' crucifixion, the water and the blood. That's how Jesus came. And try to explain that trajectory as a general increase in pleasant experience as a result of obedience. That's not what the testimony of Christ says. But verse 9 goes beyond that. That's the testimony of Christ. Verse 9 talks about a progression of testimony. It says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony or the witness of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son. So that's a conditional statement. If we receive the testimony of men. So you can look at the example of Christ, you can look in the Gospels, and you can observe that that trajectory is very different than the one that you have accepted, perhaps, in your life. He says more than that. God gives this testimony. God the Father He says, if you accept the testimony of men, and we do, we do. We have standards for that, right? Even people of high moral character that are committed to telling the truth sometimes give unreliable testimony, right? Right? That's why when the cops interrogate somebody, they treat them all like liars, Because they understand that the testimony is fallible. Even if you are relating exactly a truthful impression of what you observed, felt, saw, and sensed, that may not be accurate. You're fallible. I'm fallible. I'm probably more fallible than many of you when it comes to that sort of thing. I'm usually thinking about a thousand things at once when I'm supposed to be observing them with my eyeballs. I'm not sure what I would be diagnosed with. I haven't checked. My brain's usually pretty busy. But it's inferior. But even though it's inferior, we have standards by which we accept that someone's testimony is accurate. So what ends up happening, right, is the, a fallible person, a fallible being is trying to comprehend testimony. He's trying to, to comprehend the witness of somebody who at worst may be a straight-up liar, Maybe a liar. At best, even if he's not a liar, I mean, or a gaslighter, or a narcissist, you name it, you run it, I mean, all sorts out there, right? You're trying to comprehend that testimony as a fallible being. You may have simply somebody that is just too optimistic and doesn't want to think ill of anybody in the world. That, that's not me, by the way. <laughs> I'm just saying that they're out there. They're trying to comprehend testimony from somebody like that who may be naive or gullible or even pessimistic or hateful. There's all sorts of ambiguity when you have somebody providing testimony. So you have a fallible being trying to comprehend testimony from another fallible being that may be also have something else going on. But we still accept the term, terms of the testimony. You may recognize 
of all the news stories going on in the world right now. I hope that some of you noted the man in Missouri, Lamar Johnson, uh, who was this last week had his conviction for capital murder vacated after 27 years of a life sentence in a federal prison. There are not many things that bring me to tears, folks. The thought of a man spending, an innocent man spending 27 years of his life in a federal prison and simply having his sentence vacated, no one who put him there, no one who put him there will suffer a single ounce of repercussion for that in our justice system. That brought me to tears. Twenty-seven years. Good number, y'all. That's more than your whole lifetime, isn't it? Twenty-seven years. You know why? Because the current prosecutor said that the eyewitnesses lied. Literally, it was a false eyewitness testimony. They weren't even there is how I read that. And the prosecutor at the time engaged in significant and identifiable misconduct. But his testimony didn't get believed. The liar's testimony got believed. 27 years. Fallible people. Fallible people trying to understand and comprehend the testimony of evil people doesn't work out well. It was a lie, but it was accepted. Now, we don't have that problem with his testimony. Did you notice? God gives the testimony. He infallibly sees all. He infallibly knows all. He infallibly discerns all. He observes the testimony regarding his son, who is also infallible in his work and in his person. That is reliable. And John's point is, if you can think that any human being is ever telling you the truth about anything, you can have confidence that God is telling you the truth about who you are in Him. Because He is perfect in His understanding, and He is describing a perfect individual who perfectly sacrificed His life in our place, so that by grace, through faith alone, we would be secure in our life in Him. The testimony of God is greater. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. John has said something similar to this. I've told you before, we're going through some Old Testament books. 
uh, in the Torah in Sunday school, and I'm continually amazed, continually amazed at the audacity of some of the patriarchs. Aren't you? And you read uh, Moses multiple times. God, stop! Don't do that! Don't do that. Don't destroy all the people. Don't. Don't start over with me. Don't give me all the blessings of the whole night. Can you imagine? Can you imagine refusing that kind of tremendous blessing, being altruistic and righteous and seeking God's glory to the extent that you're willing to decline the entire Abrahamic covenant being consolidated to your own family line for the sake of God's glory? Can you imagine doing that? That's what Moses did. He did it more than once. Now, can you imagine in the converse? Can you imagine calling God a liar? The one who doesn't believe has made God out to be a liar. He said, I haven't believed that testimony, even though it's an infallible testimony about an infallible being perfect testimony about a perfect individual who did a perfect work. There's only two categories of person in John's estimation here. He makes a lot of stark contrasts that sometimes the translation makes less stark, which is why I'm not a fan of them. There's loving and hating. There's being kind and being unkind. There is calling God a liar or believing God. There's no middle ground of sort of believing God, right? Like you hear all these woke guys floating around, interfaith garbage, uh, quoting Gandhi, right, of all people from the pulpit. I like your Jesus, but I don't like your Christians, as if that's even relevant to any discussion, right? You either believe God's testimony about who Jesus Christ is or you don't. There's only two categories. Two categories, stark contrast between the two, and we need to be comfortable with that. But here's the content of the testimony. The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. That's the testimony. To these believers specifically, God has given you eternal life, therefore you possess it today. He has given it to you. You possess it in full today. It cannot be taken away from you. I think that there were some enemies that John was addressing in his own day, but I need you to understand that I have books on my shelf by very well-known guys, such as John Piper among them, who argue that you don't actually possess eternal life today. That you will stand before Jesus Christ and there will be what he calls a final justification by works, which, by the way, is a denial of everything historic about the doctrine of justification. He's among several that I have that are well-known. You, you possess it today by grace through faith. And if you are amazed by that, all the better. 
right? Yes? That seems to be the problem. These people are incredulous that God would in fact love a sinner. The same God who sent His Son to die as a propitiation, not for our sins only, but for those of the whole world, meaning those who would accept it and those who still hate God, He gave His Son for. I have no business being incredulous about that. The only accurate response as a child of God to that is simple thankfulness for the remarkable, amazing, nearly indescribable grace of God. And to embrace the gift that he has given. Eris tense. He gave it to us. It's completed. We possess it today. He has given us eternal life. It's our possession. And it's an intrinsic part of our identity in Christ. Nothing that isn't life can be in Christ. Right? Christ is life. It's part of our identity. And this life is in His Son. It's our possession. It's our identity. It's for real. It's not potential. It's not hypothetical. It's not possible. Greek has other ways of describing probability or possibility. There is no final test. There's no final quiz. Did you learn enough in Sunday school? Can you recite Pastor Josh's short summary of 1 John? There's no comprehensive exams. I've got three of those coming up. Oral exams. I'm just going to stand up there for two to four hours and just, you know, stump the dummy time for my doctoral program. Praise Jesus. There's no stump the dummy time to decide whether you get life or don't in Jesus Christ. By grace, through faith, you have trusted in Him, you have it today, and it cannot be taken away from you. And it is not subject to some sort of final comprehensive exam of your life. It doesn't matter if you learned anything. (laughs) I spent many, many years of my life, I grew up in church, I don't feel like I learned anything except how to sit still and shut up. At some point in my life, it went into, I, I, you know, or worked in my life, and I have learned a few things since then. But I possessed eternal life in single digits when I was five years old. In its entirety, fullness. As a believer, you can sit through every message, every lesson, every Bible reading, in church, never learn a thing. You can sit your butt in a different church every Sunday, and some people try this like it's a competition. Doesn't affect it? I wouldn't recommend it. It's destructive and terrible and deadly to do things like that. But when we say we possess eternal life, and that it, I mean, the it's as intrinsic to our DNA as our actual DNA. It's who we are, it's our identity, as well as our possession. And that Scripture teaches that nothing can separate us from that love that is found in Christ Jesus. We, we mean that. And we suffer no modification. We suffer no argument. We brook no conversation otherwise. See, I told you I'm not nice. We don't. 
Those are non-negotiables. He who has the Son has the life. When I was a kid, my dad would turn the TV off every time a show came on. I don't know what shows he watched. We, but there was a show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Did you ever watch that? Yeah. And you hear people describing those lifestyles and you go, oh, that, that's the life. I like that Scripture includes that particular article here, that definite article here, the life, the only life. He who has the Son has the life, whether the trajectory is of constant improved pleasantness or whether it more closely emulates Christ's. He has the life. And the one who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. It's a unique way to describe a believer. If you break out your concordance, and I know some of you, Alyssa, you're writing a paper. It requires a concordance. So you can go ahead and open this up, and you can look for the references to life and how many times this particular phrase, has the life, shows up, and it's actually very unique. More usual is a description of the child of God being a possession of Christ or being known by Christ or being a child of God in the family of God. This is unique. You don't get just part of Jesus. You get Jesus, you get the life, all of it together. They go hand in hand. It's a package. John introduced it at the beginning, actually. First John 1, 2. He's talking about the things that they saw with their eyes, that they handled with their hands, that they knew with their minds, the life that is in Christ Jesus. It was tangible. It was real. It was unmistakable in the way that they had observed it. And see, the problem, as we talked about earlier, we can look at things that are unmistakable. You can look at things that are unmistakable and mistake them, can't you? Yeah? You can look at things that are unmistakable and still mistake them. So that's why we need Scripture (laughs) to tell us that our perception of those things is not right. that we have life in Jesus Christ in order to train our minds, to train our senses, to observe things that are unmistakable and not comprehend the things that Christ makes clear in our life. Because we can know things. John gets into that in the next verse. It's actually a next section. Part of me just wants to keep keep preaching, you know, because like, I like First John 5, 13, like I think you should all know. But it is another section of Scripture, 1 John 5, 13. But John tells us that we can know things. You can know if you've sinned against somebody. You can know when you confess that sin. You can know when you're 
restored to fellowship. You can know if you're loving your brother. You can know if you're hating your brother all of the way through. And you can know today that you have life in Christ. You can know, even though your experience might try to deceive you, even though other people's experiences around you might try to deceive you, and I've had plenty of believers in my lifetime tell me they didn't think I was saved years ago. They probably still think that. They're tough cookies. Scripture tells you how you have the life through Jesus Christ. If you have him, you have the life that is intrinsic to his person. We can know that. We don't get one without the other. And it's very important that we believe that because that is the testimony that we bear ourselves. Remember, the one who believes the Son has this testimony in himself. Don't confound it. Be able to speak to the hope that you have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the surety of our knowledge that we can have, that we have life in your Son, that those who have him have life We are astounded by your graciousness, by your love for us. Thank you for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us? We'll dismiss with a song. This is unfailing love.